Gosh, sometimes our worship team is leading us like that, and I do not even want to get up here and say anything. I'm like, wow, my gosh, that is, that's just so encouraging to be able to stand in this space. And it's, it's a little bit difficult for me because I, I do feel a sense of heaviness at what people are carrying walking into this space today as we worship and I knew that I was going to be preaching on marriage and dating. And I was like, ah, just today feels heavy. And we're talking about stuff that's, you know, very relevant, but not, not as heavy and can be a little disconnected from the gospel unless you're careful. And I just feel like maybe that sense of heaviness is related to the fact that dating and romantic love is an area of our lives where the enemy has gained such a foothold in so many people in this room that God is going, no, 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 this is exactly what I want us to talk about. And I'm going to break off chains that have existed for some people for decades and for some people chains that they weren't even aware of. So I believe this is exactly where God has us going. And I want you to know from the beginning of love that lasts, that we're not simply talking about romantic love. We're talking about the love of God, agape love that is only available in Christ Jesus coming down and flowing to us and through us. And that is the only hope we have to be able to handle dating and romance and marriage well. This is a gospel series, not a dating series. This is about Jesus and it's called love that lasts. Could you look at the person next to you and say, this is going to be fun. This is going to be so much fun especially if you're next to your parents. It's going to be especially fun. Um, we're going to talk about God's heart for romance and marriage, and I believe this is an area where we as Christians have an unbelievable opportunity to paint a picture of the love of God in a way that the world is starving for, but it's also an area where we have a massive opportunity to take back ground that the enemy has gained against us personally. And I don't know your story, but for me, it took me a long time to start to relate God's individual love for me in Jesus to how I handle romantic love and dating relationships and even post-marriage in my relationship with my wife, Courtney. It took me a while to understand how these two things are actually not separated. They're actually connected. And that's the only way I'm going to be able to preach about anything effective in this series. So you need to know from the very beginning, uh, this series is about every season of life. That's how it has to be at Auburn Community Church. Sometimes I wish we could just hone in on one, but we have such a multi-generational feel to what God is doing here that I want to continue to stay on a foundational level of let's talk to everybody. If you're single, I'm talking to you. If you're married, I'm talking to you. If you're dating, I'm talking to you. If you're engaged, I'm talking to you. If you've been divorced, this series is for you. If you are widowed in this season, this is for you. And I don't want anybody to feel disconnected or not invited to hear what the word of God has to say in this moment. But I also want to say, this is not a series about advice. This is not a series about discussing relationships and giving you five tips to handle this area of your life better. Because quite honestly, that's what I got used to in the church growing up, and it just did not work for me. This is a series about letting the love of God invade your heart and life and letting that include every area of your heart and life. 
And Christians have a dangerous tendency of holding back this one area of their life while it looks like they have surrendered all to Jesus, when in reality, it's all except my romantic love story. That's exactly what I did. I was 12 years old when I decided to follow Jesus. And I don't mean like I was at youth camp and I had the emotional moment. I mean the spirit of God invaded my life in a way that was so unmistakable. To this day, it is a mystery to me. That's why at ACC, we believe that a middle school student can get it. We believe that an elementary school student can get it. We believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't need a certain age or a certain level of intellectual development to do a move of God and a work of God. Don't ever discount somebody because they are young, but let's, let, let's build up. Let's watch them build us up in every area of spiritual life. And so I was 12. I got it. I was like every area uh, or every option for my life, Jesus. Okay. Jesus wins. I just, I saw it so clearly and it wasn't even me seeing it. It was with spiritual eyes. But what I didn't know is that I did give everything to Jesus but I did not give him how I was going to handle my dating and romantic relationships, and it showed. If you looked at every area of my life over the course of the next decade, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this guy, this young man is on fire for Jesus. And then if you looked at my dating relationships, you would go, this young man is a dumpster fire. Like, what is wrong? I'm dead serious. I was that guy who was like, I'm, I'm going to marry this girl. And you're like, no, you can't drive. Like, like, it's not time to be thinking about marriage yet. And I was that guy who just every relationship was so serious. It was like, oh, man, we're definitely going to get married. And if you're that guy in the room and you're 14, 15, stop. And if, if, you're, a, if you're a girl in the room and you're 14, 15, please stop for the sake of everyone around you. And so I, I did not handle this area well. By the time I was 19 years old, I'd gone through three breakups that I thought, were going to completely destroy my life. And I did not realize how so many areas of my life could have the hand of God's blessing, but this one area had so many consequences and destruction. So many boundaries cross in multiple different ways. And I'm 19 years old and broken, saying goodbye to a relationship that I thought was definitely headed for marriage. And for some of you, I don't want to just speak this into your life because I want to make you miserable, but some of you, the best thing God could possibly do for you right now in this season is set you free from a relationship that you've been holding on to way too long. And this series is going to be really hard for you, but you might look back years from now and go, thank you, Jesus, for love that lasts because I needed to get set free. And I needed that at 19. It was the last thing I wanted in the world. I needed it so bad. And I had somebody older in my life give me a book, and that book changed my life. The title of it changed my life. It was When God Writes Your Love Story. And it was written by a married couple. Now, I need to warn you, at the time that I read it 12 years ago, it was like old and cheesy. Now it's really old and really cheesy and probably really disconnected from, from any sort of like relevance. And so I love that book. I don't want to hate on that book. It was a phenomenal book, but I would, I would say go single dating, engaged, married by Ben Stewart if you're going to get a book on uh, dating and marriage. But I got this book, When God Writes Your Love Story. And the premise of the book is the reason why we're so self-destructive in dating relationships is because we think we've given God everything, but we've decided to hold on to this one area and we're writing a story that just looks like repeat 
repeated pain and repeated habits over and over and over again. Why don't you hand over the pen and let God write your love story? And as soon as that happened in my life, it was a painful season. I remember that book. If you see that book in mine and Courtney's house, the book has pages ripped out of it because the book would make me so mad. I would slam it beside my bed at night and be like, I don't want to do this. Like physically, I don't want this. And God had to like pry open my hands in order for me to surrender this area of my life to him. And right on the back end of surrender, I started dating Courtney Lazenby, who became very shortly Courtney Lazenby Fidel. And God is good. God is faithful. But I want to say, that is not to say that as soon as you surrender your love story to God, you find your spouse. That is a false interpretation of my story. That's what God did in my life. Your life could look dramatically different, but the story and the premise is the same. Do you want to hand over your marriage to the God of the universe. Like I said, this isn't just about dating. This isn't just about preparing for marriage. Some of you have been married for multiple decades and you've never actually included your love for Jesus in your love relationship with your spouse. I believe the fastest way to get a marriage healthy is not to work on your marriage. It's to work on living for the mission of Jesus. And some of you who are married in this room need to actually consider, okay, have we actually let God write the story of our love for one another? What would it look like for us right now to retroactively take our marriage and put it in submission to God? That is possible for you. It's possible in every single season. And I just want to start off this series by straight up asking the question, do you want this? Like, do you want to give God this area of your life? And do you trust your heavenly father to write the story that's better than your best version of what you think you want? And be careful when you assume you know the answer to that question. Because if you're in here and you're a Christian and your life is submitted to Jesus, of course you're in here going, yes, I want to give that area of my life to God. That's why I'm a Christian. That's why I've given everything to follow Jesus. But I would say a large percentage of this room that thinks that they have given Jesus that area of their life, you're actually subconsciously lying. And I'll tell you why. This is part one of love that lasts. You ready for my title? It's because decisions don't lie. Decisions don't lie. You could tell me all day that you want God's story for your love story and for your life story for that matter. But no matter what you say out loud with your lips, it's your decisions that you take part in on a daily basis that ultimately writes the future that you walk in for forever. And I took this title, Decisions Don't Lie, from a basketball term. Any basketball players in the room? Anybody happy about basketball in Auburn, Alabama after that game yesterday? Y'all, that was so crazy. I was losing my mind in our living room. I think my daughters were scared. That was, that was insane. If you were at that game, you need to be thanking Jesus today. That was just a special moment. I love our basketball team. They, I don't know how they do it. It's just so fun to watch. But basketball players have this system for telling the truth with one another. It's called ball don't lie. And when you grow up playing pickup basketball, some of the basketball players in the room, you know what I'm talking about. There's this thing that happens when you get a bunch of guys together who are young and insecure. It's called irrational, immature arguments. And so they have all these arguments about fouls, about what the score is, about uh, who stepped out of bounds. And whenever an argument breaks out, there's no way to solve it. You don't have an actual referee at a pickup game. Basketball players, 
verify this with me. What you do is you hand the ball to somebody and you say, ball don't lie. And if they make the shot, they were telling the truth. If they missed the shot, they weren't telling the truth. Now, admittedly, this is an extremely illogical way of doing life. One that I participate in, even though I'll just say this, I'm super competitive, but I'm also a middle child. And so I grew up being a peacemaker. I would always withdraw from the argument about whatever it was. But whenever somebody would say, ball, don't lie, I would, I would want to be the guy who was shooting. I'm like, I just, I get to earn some, I get to win. And, um, and I, I was always around situations like that with arguments growing up. I remember so I have, a, I have a brother who's older than me, a year and a half older, and then a brother who's a year and a half younger than me. And we played in a three-on-three basketball tournament on vacation in Kiowa Island. And we were playing against three other brothers in the championship game of this tournament. This is Fidel, family vacation. And legitimately beating this team, these guys are like twice our age, but they're like football players trying to play basketball. And you know how that goes. And so, and, and so we're winning and they're frustrated because we're not as old as them. And my little brother uh, was really easy to kind of take advantage of. He's 6'3", six, 6'4", six, now, so I'm extremely jealous of that. But at the time, he was shorter. And, uh, and he was kind of getting elbowed and bullied. And my older brother, who's a little bit more, I'll just say... Uh, direct than I am. Um, he, he looks at those guys and he says, Hey, if you touch our little brother one more time, something is going to happen. And, and so they did, they elbowed my little brother one more time. My older brother chucks the ball out of bounds, walks up to this kid, family vacation, grabs his shirt, spins him in a circle, breaks his nose, sends him to the hospital. Everybody else from both families jumps in. My dad jumped in. The beach patrol is like coming over in this three-on-three tournament. Now, here's what you need to understand. This will, this will teach you so much about me. I, as soon as this broke out, I thought to myself, okay, we're probably not going to finish this game. And we're in the lead. So I go over to the people running the tournament while the fight is going on. And I say, hey, because we're winning, do we get the trophy? And, and can we go ahead and get that going home? This was my family's vacation growing up. And that should explain so much about the reality that you see every Sunday. And so um, that's just kind of how I was. I'm always the one to kind of sit out, but, but still super competitive and all about winning. And it's fine. Like the cops showed up and, and my dad had to fill out a statement and all that stuff. It was fine. We did end up champions and, and they won the fight. Um, anyway, what am I talking about? Oh yeah. Ball don't lie. Ball don't lie. So, so the thought in basketball is, Hey, if you just, if, whatever the ball does, that tells the truth. I'll say this about your dating life and about your marriage. Almost everyone expects their love story to end up at a certain destination, but few, very few actually make daily decisions to head in that direction. So you want to tell me, I want God's story for my love life. That's awesome. I just want to be real with you from the beginning. Decisions don't lie. Your ability to say that out loud doesn't compare to your ability to activate wisdom on a daily basis. It's direction not intention that determines destination. That's what Andy Stanley says, and I love that. Because so many of us think that we're gonna end up on the other side of our best intentions. It's not true. If you get on 85 South with the intention of going to Atlanta, you're not going to end up in Atlanta. You're gonna end up in Montgomery. That's fine. People got really offended last service when I made it sound like it was a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, just not as good as the other direction. And so if you're on, but listen, if you're on 85 South and you're like, I want to go to Atlanta, you're like, that's great. You can want that all you want. But if you want that, it's not this way, it's that way. 
You got to get on that road and go in that direction. That's what I want to say to so many Christians who pretend like they want God's best for their love story. They pretend like they want to have a marriage that's set on the glory of God. They pretend like they're dating in a way that's wise. It's like decisions don't lie. Where you are setting your feet in a certain direction on a daily basis will actually determine where you end up because choices create futures. Just like this iPad is made up as the collective putting together of a lot of parts I don't understand, your love life is the collective collection of a bunch of choices that you make. So this exists for the purpose that it exists for because a designer put it together over time. Your love story is written by the decisions that you make on a daily basis and your path, the path that you choose to walk with your feet spiritually and relationally. And so I want to say this. This series cannot be about advice. I've been in too many sermon series where it's like, well, let me give you advice for your individual season. And if you just read this book on the love languages, and if you just read, and I love that book, and you just get this advice, you just go to this conference. If you just listen to this guy, listen, it doesn't really matter if your love for Jesus hasn't changed the way you activate your will today. It just doesn't matter. So I don't want to waste your time. If you're going to leave here and make decisions with the pen in your hand, I have nothing for you. And by the way, when you end up in that self-destructive, painful position, please stop blaming God. Like it was somehow God's fault that the end of the road of that relationship that you insisted on for so long didn't go the way you wanted it to go or ended up way more painful than you ever thought possible. I think God gets a bad rap as the writer of our love story when we're claiming he's the one writing it, but in reality, we got this undercover thing going on. At least that's what I had going on. Same thing happens in marriages. And we project on him what we've actually caused ourselves. And so what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to consider, how do I let the love of Jesus, the only love that lasts, invade my love story? Are you guys down to do that? If you got your Bible, hold it up all over this place. More relevant than ever, Bible drill. Come on, guys. This is so good. It's too personal. We're not going to do it. Ephesians chapter 5. This, the, the, not, not during this sermon. Maybe next week. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. I went to Ephesians 5 this week because every wedding I get the opportunity to officiate, I read Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through, through 33. It's the most powerful depiction of how Christian marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It's more than just two people who love each other and want to spend their lives together. It's a picture of covenant. It's a picture of the eternal union of the people of God, the church, the bride of Christ, and Jesus, the bridegroom. I love that passage. I've never considered how the passage before it feeds into the reality of it. A lot of you look around this room and you look around this church at some awesome marriages and you never consider the decades of decisions that went into building that great marriage. You never take the time to go, hey, I wonder what set this up. I wonder what foundation was in place in their lives that makes them able to have a marriage that has stood the test of time and raise kids like that and proclaim the name of Jesus like that and give generously like that. The answer, I think, is looking a little bit, a little bit further back at, okay, how did decisions build their life in this direction? So when I was looking at Ephesians 5, I was like, 
I wonder what Paul said right before this section on marriage. And what's happening is in Ephesians, you got a divided church, divided between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Remember, every time you see Ephesians, I want you thinking unity. Paul's trying to make them one in Christ. And so he prays a prayer that's three chapters long. And then in chapters four and five, he gets into more of the specifics of how Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, white or black, rich or poor, whatever side you end up on all these different divisions, how all Christians should live their lives. Watch what happens in verse one. He's going to give specific directions here. He says this. If you're there, say I'm there. Here we go. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. I love this. And walk in the way of love. The only way for a Christian to walk in the way of love relationally to people around them is to be rooted in the love that comes from being a child of God. You cannot manipulate love or manufacture it as something that you get just by being a human being and feel feelings towards someone else. It's got to be rooted in a childlike faith that brings you in a right relationship with God. And what does it say? Walk in the way of love. How? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's one verse that you might need to put up in your home for your marriage. I think it's this one. Because this one points out that the only love that lasts, the love that comes from God, is first and foremost a sacrificial love. You need to know, if you want God to take the pen of your love story and write something great, you need to know this. Nothing great comes without great cost. Nothing that is considered great will come without a great cost price attached to it. That's why everything that you and I value, even materially, why do we value it the way that we do? Because of its comparative value. We know that car is worth this because it costs this. That house is worth this because it's, it costs this. There's a cost attached to it. You need to know if you want the love story that God has for the future of your marriage, for a future marriage in general, you need to know it will cost you because it's valuable and rare. Look around in our world right now. You cannot tell me that it is normal to have two people that over the course of a lifetime fall deeper in love with one another and simultaneously fall deeper in love with Jesus. It's rare. And so it's going to be costly. How will it cost me? Self-sacrifice. You don't separate Jesus' call to take up your cross and come follow him from his call to handle your dating relationships and your marriage. But here's what I want to tell you. Whatever you give up, whatever you sacrifice for this will be small in comparison to what will be taken from you if you try to do this your own way. So even though I want to point out this will cost you if you listen to me, this will be hard. Please know it will be a lot harder and a lot more painful if you don't listen. How did Jesus love us and tell us how God loves us as a fragrant offering, sacrifice before God? If every single married person in this room would start thinking about how they treat their spouse through this one filter, we could get 90% of the marriages in this church healthy by the end of the day. One filter. How has Jesus loved you? Love her like that. Love him like that. So when they fall short, think. How has Jesus loved me lately? 
and respond. When you're moving on with your week, when you're moving in a season of difficulty, continue to relate how you love your spouse to how you have been loved by Jesus. And then what happens in Ephesians chapter 5 is Paul gets into some really specific directions about how God's holy people avoid deeds of darkness. But then if you skip down to verse 15, he picks up on this language of walking in the way of love, like actively choosing the path of your feet by making decisions. Look at verse 15. I'm going to read it in the ESV, y'all. I'm leaving behind NIV, and I'll tell you why. Look at this. Not, I'm leaving it behind for this section of verses. Calm down. Look carefully, then, how you walk. That's why. NIV, for some reason, translates walk, live, and it's, it's walk. It's the same word in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He's picking up on the same idea, and I was like, sometimes the NIV does stuff like that. It drives you crazy. But look carefully, then, how you, it drives you crazy. Only the pastors in the room are like, yeah, and everybody else is like, what's he talking about? All right, look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Finish that section. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, go back up to that first section. I'll explain all of this. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Decisions don't lie. Not as unwise, but as wise. For every single season on the spectrum, you need to hear this. The question about what you should do in your love story should never be a question of right and wrong. It should always be a question of wise or unwise. You should never ask yourself, well, is it right or wrong for me to date her? Is it right or wrong for us to, is it right or wrong for, I mean, I mean, definitely the Bible teaches against this and for this. No, 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 no. We're not talking about getting advice on some kind of rule and restriction. We're talking about God as a relational heavenly father. I love that Paul says, think about the paths of your feet and walk with wisdom. How do you make a decision with wisdom? Three filters. Past experiences, present circumstances, future hopes and dreams. In a moment you go, what's happened in the past? What's happened in other people's past? Where am I right now in this season? And where do I want to go moving forward? And in light of that, that informs where I step, how I step, or who I step with at all. Not, well, it's not wrong. Okay. Just because it's right doesn't mean that it's wise. And wisdom is the ultimate filter. How do I, okay, but I'm always searching for wisdom. I'm I'm always searching for the will of God. Here's what's crazy. Paul doesn't say search for the will of God. He says walk in it. You already know what it is. Look at verse uh, 17. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Some of you are like, I'm I'm trying. I literally spend all my time trying to figure out what in the world he is doing in my love life, what in the world he is doing in my marriage. I'm trying to figure out the will of the Lord. Paul doesn't say figure out the will of the Lord. He says you already know what it is. Understand what it is and walk in it. Romans chapter 12 talks about a renewed mind, that when you get a renewed mind, you get to walk confidently in his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You need to know today Walking in a love that lasts and making decisions in that direction begins with realizing that you don't need any more information from God about your love story. You don't. 
You think you do, but when you make that your pursuit, you miss out on this about the will of God. The will of God is never something you find. The will of God is something you do. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what do you mean? I mean Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will what? Make your path straight. When does God make your path clear about what you're supposed to do moving forward? When you're submitted to his revealed ways. Don't make your love story about trying to figure out God's concealed will. Make your love story about trying to submit to God's revealed ways in the scriptures. So maybe God hasn't shown you everything about who to date, everything about how to get your marriage healthy and everything about some of your next steps, but he has shown you who to be today. And if you're more consumed with the ways of God, you will never be outside of the will of God. Y'all, if I was in college right now, I would be like, amen, Miles, because I'm so sick and tired of trying to figure out God's will for my life. I'm telling you, stop. I'm telling you, God's will for your life is today. Are you surrendered to his ways? You're already in the center of his will. If I'm in the middle of his ways, I can know confidently I'm becoming the man, I'm becoming the woman God's called me to be, so I never have to wonder whether or not I'm actually missing a piece of the story. And I don't have to spend my whole life praying for things that God has actually called me to walk in today. You know, prayer is amazing, but prayer will never release you from having to make decisions. But prayer will release you to make good decisions. See, God, God doesn't want your relationship with him to be robotic. Or he just says, do this, date her, this direction, go there, we're doing this, we're doing that. God wants your relationship to be relational. And so yes, he's going to give you direction about where to go and, and who to date and all those things, but it's more about a daily submission and surrender to becoming who you're called to be and making decisions in real time rooted in wisdom. The reason why I'm preaching this so confidently and the reason why I'm a little bit, I got some angst in my spirit today is because I'm so tired of people pretending like they want more advice. I've done so many Q&A sessions with young people specifically about boundaries in dating and how do you date well and how do you do this and that well. I'm so tired of answering every question and pointing to every resource that answers every question because you want to know what I found out? People don't actually care. You're never going to do that if Jesus has not become your everything and you've gotten surrendered on the inside to the joy that comes from knowing him. And so don't make this about what's my next step. Make this about, hey, what's going on with all your steps? And are all your ways totally submitted to God? How do I know if I'm totally submitted to God? This is the good news. Are you consumed from the inside out with the joy that comes from being his child? That's what the whole section on getting drunk with wine was about. Anybody read that and go, what are we talking about in the dating series? Well, it could be related. But uh, look, at, look at verse 18. Watch this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks when, always, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is amazing. Paul is contrasting the world's joy with a Christian's joy. And he says, the world seeks joy by having to fill themselves on the inside with a substance to numb something and to awaken something that we already have on the inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need something. 
to alter our state of mind. We've already been altered in totality by the Spirit of God. And what does the Spirit, what does the Spirit of God make you do? He makes you follow the rules. He enables you to do the Ten Commandments, and he makes you go to church. Nope. What does the Spirit of God make you do? He makes you freak out in worship. Do you read that? That you're giving thanks in all circumstances, that you're walking around going, I am freaking out, crazy in love with my Savior, and I'm going to sing about it. And if I had a good voice, I'd be singing. This is me pretending to sing, and it kind of sounds like Elf. Um, But I'm just being real, guys. It's about gratitude. You want clarity about the will of God? Clarity comes when you're grateful for the season that you're currently in, not bitter because you want to know about the next one. And so for a Christian, it's like, are you absolutely in love with Jesus today and letting your heart burn with a fire to know him? Stop separating that from your love story. You guys know what we were just doing in this room, singing what a beautiful name, singing all praise? That's not different from what God is doing in your dating relationships, in your marriage right now. The two are connected. And your ability to delight in God personally, is the single most healthy ingredient you can introduce to God transforming your love story. You just being in love with Jesus. And so I'd love to get in front of you today and and give you some decisions that you need to make, and I promise I will, but I cannot give you the end of this sermon without first telling you, when Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you, he was not joking and he was not saying that about everything else but romantic love. That's included. So I'm about to give you some decisions that I'm going to call you to make in your individual season. And I just want to tell you, you can go ahead and tune me out if you haven't discovered a love for knowing Jesus for yourself in the season that you're in right now that has transformed you from the inside out. It will be good advice at best, but it will not transform your heart. This is all about who is Jesus to you. And if, watch this, if you're going to make wise decisions on a daily basis, it is not about strategically reading the Bible or finding the right sermons and books. It's about staying in love with your Savior. You'll never be outside of the will of God if you're falling before your Heavenly Father in worship and letting your life overflow with a thank you to God. Man, I really do wish somebody would have told me that a long time ago. I spent so much time trying to figure it out. Don't figure it out. Worship. Gratitude. Seek first his kingdom. Somebody say, decisions don't lie. Look at the person next to you. Say, decisions don't lie. Come on. All right, so here's what I got. I got four points. Some of you are in trouble. (laughs) I just looked up and saw some, like, faces. All right, um... I got four points. Each one is for a different season of life. It's going to go like this. Single, dating, engaged, married. Yes, that is a title of a book by Ben Stewart. Yes, you should read it. That, sh- that is like the most important thing you should do. I mean, married, dating, divorce, wherever you are, you need to read that book. And if you're married and you're like, I wish I would have heard this talk 20 years ago. Well, you're hearing it right now. And I believe the Holy Spirit can do things retroactively in your life and do more right now than he ever could with those 20 years. You should let God invade right now. But you need to get that book. Some of these points are highly, highly influenced by the chapters of those books, that book, specifically these one words. Okay, point number one. If you are single, all the single people in the room, point number one is for you. And by the way, when I hit on points that you're not in, married people, 
when you see the advice I have for single people and you go, oh, I didn't do that, that could be why things are not where you want them to be right now in the present. Just pay attention. Here we go. Number one, surrender for devotion. Singleness is a gift from God to develop wholehearted devotion to Jesus. If you are not married, finding contentment in your one-on-one relationship to Jesus is the greatest gift you could ever give your future spouse. And who cares about that? It's the greatest gift you could ever give yourself. Allowing yourself on the inside to not be moved by anything that happens out there, but total wholehearted devotion to God. And here's the thing. Here's why singleness is a gift. Singleness is an opportunity to experience that in your life personally, but also through you in ministry in a way that you cannot experience it in any other season. That's why Paul calls it a gift. Now, if you're in here and you're like, okay, singleness is a gift. We've heard it all before. Like, it's not really a gift. Come on. No, part of the problem is we need to stop idolizing a relationship as the end-all, be-all. Our relationship with Jesus is the end-all, be-all. If you're single, it's a gift to step into that more. And you can listen to a great sermon on that by Mike Todd called Relationship Goals Transformation Church. It's awesome. But I want to read you this from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He talks about his singleness. He says, oh, yeah, guys, Paul was single. No one in the Bible used like Paul. You're like, Jesus, single. So we need to, we need to like reframe the way we look at singleness as like, oh, it's just kind of the gift that no one wants. No, it's the gift that God uses mightily. I wish that all, whereas I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul considers his singleness a gift that he wish he could impart to more people because of what he is gleaning from it in his life personally. Your singleness, even though you might want a relationship and you might want your love story to go a certain way down the road, it's not wrong to want that, but you need to agree that your singleness is an opportunity to develop wholehearted devotion for Jesus, and you might never have an opportunity quite like this one. Don't squander this opportunity in the here and now to get submitted to the ways of God, because if you do, then you might meet somebody and you might show up on an altar and you know what will happen. You'll have a heart that was entirely dependent on meeting them and not fully devoted to God. And I promise that will show post wedding date. You got an opportunity for devotion to God. Now in that, it is not wrong to want a relationship. It is not wrong to pray and ask God to give you a relationship. Just don't idolize that in place of who is actually Lord over the throne of your heart. Tell him, pray, tell your friends that that's what you're praying toward. Don't be like trying to keep it a secret that you're okay. I'm in a position of devotion. I'm ready for God to reveal what's next. God will be in the waiting. We're going to talk about that next week. But number one, surrender for somebody say it devotion. That's right. That's all the single people in the room. And I want to just say that we've got to make sure at ACC that singleness is not seen as a negative. I do the Bible drill every week, and that's not so that all the single people can get out of their singleness because it's something to escape. That's because I would love for Christians in Auburn, Alabama to meet and get married through who they meet here rather than Skybar. That's why I do that. Did you know that? Because like, I, I think this is a better place to meet people. Another, another bit of dating advice. Watch out for where you meet them because where you look for them has a lot to do with where they will end up. Decisions don't lie. Surrender for devotion. All right, you guys ready for number two? This is going to be fun. Number two, if you're 
Surrendered. Now these lead, these lead to the next one, okay? Surrender for devotion, number two, date for evaluation. Date for evaluation. So if I've got my heart wholly surrendered to Jesus, I'm ready to date. Well, what's the purpose of dating? Evaluating for marriage. Now, this is where we got to be careful because dating is not in the Bible anywhere. Anywhere. You're like, yeah, we need to go old school. We need to go courtship. You know, bring the parents on dates. I'm all for that now that I have two girls. But courtship is also not in the Bible. The Bible does have evaluation, the process of evaluating who you are going to enter into the covenant of marriage with. And our cultural context is dating. And I want to say something, and I realize how like, out of touch I sound when I say it, but I'm just going to say it. You should only date to marry, not date to make yourself feel better. I feel so hypocritical right now because I know that me, a few years younger, would be laughing right now and would be going, are you kidding me? That is so out of touch with reality. We're only going to date when we're ready to get married, and that's fine. You can feel that way. Here's what I would tell you. Go do it your own way, and let me know if years down the road you don't wish you could come back and do it God's way. I'm telling you, it hurts so bad. So I realize that this is totally against our culture of Snapchat, Instagram, everything that our culture allows for in dating. But if the purpose of marriage is to pursue Jesus together and to become more like Jesus in one union, wouldn't it make sense for pre-marriage to begin with, okay, how do I wisely set my feet to evaluating who is a candidate for my future spouse? But hold up, before I do that, am I surrendered for wholehearted devotion to God? Most of you, no. And so you don't need to step into the evaluation phase before Jesus has not necessarily completed, because that, that part will never be complete, but taken a lot of ground in getting you wholehearted devotion to him. Then you're ready to date to evaluate. Now, I sound so out of touch, but here's the thing. I am the pastor of this church, and we have thousands of people here. And a large majority of those people are between the ages of 18 to 25. What if, what if we start a revolution here? What if we all, I'm just going crazy. What if we all started dating wisely and differently? And what if we made that a norm where when two people go on a date to evaluate if it's a fit to go on another date, we don't marry them off by the time they get home. And I'm, I'm talking to myself because I'm like the most guilty person in the room with this two people from ACC go on a date. And, you know, we're all like, oh, my gosh, you got your wedding venue picked out. Like, let's because Christians, it's like Christians all I mean, they want to get married so fast. And people always ask me, why do Christians get married so young? And I'm always like, have you read the rules? Um, it happens quickly. So. What we need to do is we need to have a system in place where we as a body agree that, hey, two people can go on a date, multiple dates and then stop dating. And it doesn't have to self-destruct an entire friend group. It doesn't have to become something to where everybody's so invested and everybody's freaking out. And we need permission for evaluation. You go on a date. Listen, a date is not a commitment. It's an event. 
You evaluate how an event went and you figure out if you're interested in going on another one or if the other person is interested in going on another one. And then the relationship naturally progresses from there. But we are in a context where our culture tells us that getting married and finding love is the highest ideal, the highest way to know whether or not you're fully alive. So we got people who way too young are entering into these super possessive, serious relationships. It's not their fault. They didn't know any different and no one taught them any different. Parents in the room, I want to say that you are as guilty or probably more guilty than anyone in this room of the dating climate that it surrounds everybody. Because we have actually encouraged the younger generation to enter into relationships way before their souls were ready. And we did not take our rightful place, not just to make them go to church. You do have a right to do that, by the way, but also to control how they go about dating. Like, I don't have control. Like, they're going to do what they're going to do. No, they live in your house. Well, what's, how do I enforce that? Take the money away if they don't. Like, all you have to do is be a parent. Have a conversation with them and go, hey, listen. Some of you are like, oh, he's going to learn when his girls are 15 and 13. I get it. But you do have to sit them down and go, hey, this is an area where most of your peers are going to get heartbroken and handle very, very, very poorly. And I want you to think about the paths of your feet. And listen, the decisions that you're making today are setting the course of the trajectory for the rest of your life. You are not ready to date at 15. You're not ready to date most of the time. 16, 17, you're not. Even, I know you can drive, but you're not ready. And if we have parents who are bold enough to have those conversations, I think we can change the climate a little bit. Now, once you're dating, you're like, okay, I'm evaluating. What am I evaluating? Okay, be a human being. Sometimes I think Christian dating becomes very robotic because we're like, okay, guard your heart. I got I to gotta do all this stuff. I got I to gotta check all the boxes. Don't go there in the conversation. Like, look this, say this. She reads truth. And, and I got to do all this stuff. And I got to control this. And it's like, no, like we got to be human beings. It's, there's real relational dynamics in play here. But, so what should you evaluate? I don't know. Are you physically attracted to them? Is there chemistry? Are you going in a similar place in life? Do you enjoy being around them? Like be a normal human being. But, but above everything else, everybody look up here and do not miss this. The number one thing that you should evaluate in someone you are dating, the number one, number one, number one thing is their decisions. Why? Because decisions don't lie. Who do they follow on social media? How do they spend their time? How do they spend their money? How's their relationship with their parents? How do they handle friendship rifts? Do they gossip? What's the, what's the priority of their involvement in their local church? Oh, they go to five? They'll always go to five. Like you look at, okay, you're, you're going to make, you're making decisions in a pattern and you're going to become, not that they're perfect, but this becomes what you're evaluating. And yes, all the other stuff matters too, but now you're in this funnel that's leading you into health. And I just feel like we have the opportunity at ACC to make healthy dating a normal thing, which could lead to making healthy marriages a normal thing as well. Is this good? All right, come on. Surrender for devotion. Date four. Number three, if you're engaged, this one will be quick. Prepare for union. Prepare for union. I believe the season of engagement is about a preparation for the union of the covenant of marriage. But please know this, engaged couples in the room, you will never, ever, ever be prepared for marriage. (laughs) You can stay engaged (laughs) 
until you're 90 and be like, I'm still not ready, still not feeling good about it. In fact, Courtney and I were giving some advice to a couple in our church. They're engaged and they're getting married this summer. And they were sitting on our couch two weeks ago. And we said, hey, how scary is this that like you guys have been dating for a couple of years, but just, you know, we're, we're like a decade in. We just want to tell you that like you don't even know the person you're sitting next to right now. How exciting is that? And you don't. You really don't. Like you can evaluate all day long. You can be as wise as you can possibly be. But you get married and then there's stuff that's going to happen in him. There's stuff that's going to happen in her. And, 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 and it's not that the whole thing goes terrible. It is that the whole thing, you're just not ready for the power of a union. And God meant it to be a journey. But if you've prepared in wisdom over time, you surrender for devotion, you date for evaluation. Okay, how do we handle engagement? You need to focus on preparation. You need to make sure you're in our engaged couples community group led by Chris and Katie Boer, talking about finances, talking about sex, talking about friendships, talking about chores. Uh, talk, talk, who's going to do this? It's, if it's trash, guys, um, uh, you're talking about how many kids are we going to have? How, you got to have some of these conversations. But listen, the number one thing that very few married couples in this room did before they got married, number one thing that you need to do if you're engaged, and if you're married right now, you need to retroactively do this. You need to consider how your family of origin is going to impact your marriage. You need to consider what patterns you're carrying from your parents into this union that you're about to enter into. And a great opportunity to do that in our church is emotionally healthy spirituality and emotionally healthy relationships. There's an emotionally healthy relationships group that starts tomorrow night at six o'clock. And it helps you unpack. This is what I'm carrying from my parents. Because married couples in the room, please amen me on this. You get married and you get years down the road and you're like, no, I am my dad. I He's in me, and I have to somehow deal with this, and better yet, they have to deal with this. You get prepared by letting Jesus into that whole process, and I'm over time, so I got to hurry. Let's say them all again. Surrender for, date for, prepare for, and lastly, for the married couples in the room. Can you just raise your hand if you are, if you are married in this room right now so we can all represent together? God, we got like a married click back there in the back. What is going on back there? That's awesome. All right, this is for y'all. Here we go. Live for mission, not marriage. Live for mission. When you get married, that is not the end all be all goal of your life. That is not your happily ever after. That is a part of your eternal union with Jesus. And the most healthy marriages in this room are the marriages that are not trying to be healthy. They're the marriages that are trying to be holy before Jesus. If you stop basing your marriage on trying to be a better husband, trying to be a better wife, and start basing it on trying to be a better follower of Jesus, I promise you, you'll be a better husband or be a better wife. And we've got to have this seeking the kingdom of God as the end all be all because marriage is really about picking up the other person when they fall. And what I need from my wife, Courtney, more often than not is for her to be battling in prayer for me spiritually and not missing out on an opportunity to be on her knees. But I can tell you this, when her dad passed away a couple of years ago she needed me to put her on my back spiritually and carry the weight this is what is so beautiful about marriage two are better than one because if one falls down the other can pick them up 
You cannot help her. You cannot help him if you're not living in close proximity to Jesus. The best thing you can do for the people closest to you is stay as close as you possibly can to Jesus himself. And I'm just believing that God wants marriages to rise up all over this church that are not so serious about learning how to romance the other one. That's got its own place. But it's the most serious about are we living on mission for the glory of God? There are mornings I wake up and I do not want to pursue God. I am a pastor. And when I walk out of my room and I look on the couch and see my wife was pursuing God before I was done doing my hair, I go, thank you, Jesus. But I saw that at 19 when she couldn't miss a quiet time. Decisions don't lie. I'm dreaming that today, whatever season of life that you're in, the love of Jesus that we've been singing about, that we're crazy about, I'm dreaming about that invading your love story and God doing something new and fresh in this place. And so we wanted to end this moment giving some of you who are married an opportunity to worship side by side. One of the things we love to do at ACC, we'll probably do this next week, when we do communion, I always tell the husbands to pray over their wives because I'm a husband who forgets to pray over his wife. And I would love it if I had a pastor who mandated it. So that's why I do that, because it's like, you may have forgotten about it all month, but you're going to do it right here. And you're like, thank you. I'm not trying to shame anybody into becoming something they're not. I am saying the pathway to your family's health looks like your one-on-one relationship with Jesus. You can put your notes away. Let's stand up all over this room. We're going to sing before we go. Just believe him for something new in this space. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes all over the space? I just want to pray for people who, in your season, you want to hand over the pen of your love story to God. Maybe you know for a fact that you've been holding on to it for way too long. And this morning is the time that you want to go, here, God, it's yours. My heart is yours. My love life is yours. You can have everything. I want to pray over you. If that's you in this space, would you just lift up your hand right where you are? I want to pray for you. Amazing. God, so many hands that I know have been squeezing so tightly to their own version of the story. I pray the same freedom that you showed me 12 years ago would be resounding all over this room. That surrender would not be a word that we sing every once in a while, but it would be the attitude of our heart. Our hearts are yours. All praise is yours, Jesus. I pray that we would be a church rising up with relationships that look like joy, that look like fun, that look like bending a knee to serve the other one, that look like spending our lives on the altar because that's what you did for us. So God, we remember you. We sing to you this morning. We give you everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, church, let's sing.